Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome. Welcome. To Library Users of America and BRL, and our second session of the afternoon, which is about a book which has one of the more unusual titles you'll ever hear, Their Plant Eyes by M. Leona Godden, who is a blind lady from the Bay Area out in California. Um, but uh, she, um, she has written a really interesting book. One of the, one of the more interesting things that, uh, that we were sort of amazed at is this is a lady who is not a Braille reader, um, doesn't have enough vision, obviously, to read print anymore, but she does read her book. And she reads it according to her, um, and, and I, I absolutely can't doubt it, by listening to Jaws in her ear. And cutting things into very short sentences and fragments. Right. But she really does extremely well. It is, a, it is quite a well-read book. So it is one of the relatively small number of books um, that are available on Bard, both in Braille and uh, on Talking Book. And at the, at the end, I'm not sure. I, I know I don't have the actual information, but we can put it out again. It, and it's in the memorandum. It's come out in several announcements. And uh, so it's it's been out there. You all can find it. We hope that 984 of you have read it um, because we will be interested in your comments. We generally choose books for one book, one ACB, because we think uh, that the book has some intrinsic qualities, but also because we believe that there are some things that folks might find difficult to take. And we want to create an opportunity for us to use books for what they were intended, which is to be a source of discussion and debate. And so we hope we'll have lots of that as we go on. The title of this book actually comes from a poem by John Milton. And to read the passage that kind of explains the book's title, here is uh, our president, Miss Judy. The quote is from Paradise Lost. And um, I'm not going to do anything but literally read the place in the poem that she has taken the title. So much the rather thou celestial light shine inward. And the mind through all her powers irradiate their plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. Sort of a typical uh, Milton verse. I'd like to ask folks in the Zoom room, and folks in this room, how many of y'all have read their plant eyes? Say I. How many hands do we have in the Zoom room, Mr. Travis? We have two that have raised their hand since you posed the question. Nice. So more a number of people in the room, but supposedly only a couple on the Zoom call. That's excellent. So so let's do another 
Another quick question, um, and we're going to ask this in two parts. Uh, how many people in this room loved the book? I actually <laughs> loved it. Yeah, not. And how many people hated it? I didn't hate it, but I did not. Didn't love it. <laughs> Very good. Um, and uh, so let's let's raise some hands in the Zoom room just to be democratic. Um, of the two people who read it, w- would either of you be prepared to say you loved the book? Yeah, there is one hand left in Zoom. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So you guys, all right. Let, we want to dive in here, I think, by beginning with perhaps someone in the room saying what they liked about the book. Okay, I'm I'm going to start off, and, and like I said, I, I'm not a big fan of the book after reading it. Um, I uh, really was impressed, and, and I have said before in our library without walls and that sort of thing that I like to read a lot of the introductory material and in, ending material as much as the book, uh, and um, on my uh, book port, uh, where I read the book audio, uh, it, the book's over 12 hours long, and 13% of the book at the end is a very detailed reference uh, uh, markings uh, where you can go back and find quotes and so on. I, it, it's absolutely amazing how, how detailed those are. And, of course, then the bibliography after that is certainly outstanding. But um, I think yeah, if you would give me the privilege here, I have my book port, and I think the whole crux of the book to me came up in about a 30-second thing, and I'd, I'd like to see if I could play that. Very good. Okay. If sighted people constantly put so much stock in our idealized, unique perspective as demonstrated by their near obsession with us in literature and film, then we might as well do so ourselves. If there can be black pride and gay pride, and more recently, disability pride, then why not a little blind pride? Okay, I I think to me that that's what the book sums up as, but I, I... Kind of disagree with that. I, I don't consider myself as being uh, someone from a, a minority group, just like a bunch of others that every once in a while has to go out and march to tell people I'm great, or you know that um, you know you uh, just have to kind of advertise. Uh, Look what I do, and, and I have enough self confidence in what I do uh, as a blind person that. I, I just don't like that role. So to me, that that was the yeah. summary of the book for me. Okay, Adam, thank you. Now let's get that mic to somebody who might have a different point of view. Um, this is Peter Heide. I love the book. I I was taken in the first very first pages of it, and uh, I was so taken with it that I couldn't stop reading it. I read it from beginning to end without stop. Um, I... Um, I, I thought the uh, her analysis of uh, Lear was uh, just so 
I, I wanted to be able to say that at one time in my life and didn't have the words to do it. And uh, I just was so, so uh, appreciative of the fact that there was another person that saw the same things in Lear that I saw and that um, my master's thesis was on uh, auditory imagery in uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. And so um, I was just sort of blown away by uh, by Emiliano's uh, words on Paradise Lost. And uh, that, that, uh, that just carried me right on through the whole book. I read the book in Braille. I'm glad I did because I'm not as well educated as some of you folks. And I had to go back to a dictionary and having read it, if I'd read it in Audible, I wouldn't have known what some of those words were. I think it could have been about half the length. Um, it, it really was very long, very detailed. Um, but I do agree about the oculocentric world. We certainly live in it. And I do agree about blind pride. I don't know about the rest of you, but I certainly had it drummed into my head as someone blind from birth that blindness was something to be uh, ashamed of, uh, that my parents were uh, sort of ashamed of of me um, until they got over it. And I think this is something that maybe we differ from as opposed to the deaf culture, which seems to have uh, a lot of pride in their sign language and pride in their accomplishments. And we, I think, sometimes perhaps try to blend in too much to the sighted world or try to uh, apologize for the things that we struggle with instead of saying, hey, these things are sort of difficult. So... um, I, I, and I just found a lot of the uh, stuff about the Greeks and all that sort of thing in the Paradise Lost just sort of went a little bit over my head. I was going to try to recommend this to sighted people, and I'm not sure that they would plow through it. So let's pause for a second. I'm going to say probably oh, 30, 45 seconds worth of stuff. And then I'm going to encourage Judy, perhaps to say 30 to 45 seconds of stuff, to try to sum up what, what at least I think um, some of the, the, the central uh, elements of the book are. So here you have uh, an academic um, who is blind and who began as a, a, a functional partial, but pretty quickly lost uh, quite a lot of vision to the point where uh, where I'm not sure that she has very much usable vision anymore. Mm-hmm. But what she, what, what she experienced at the same time as she was losing her vision uh, was a reorientation of the way that society viewed her and an expectation that she would change the way that she viewed herself by the rest of society. At the same time, because her interest was in literature and the history of culture, she was reading through as many examples as she chose to discuss of the way that blind people have been portrayed in literature. And what she essentially tried to do, at least the, the, the way that I see it, is to filter the things that she believed that all of these elements of literature did 
through the lens of her experience so that what you end up with at the end uh, is a combination of two things, uh, a combination of a kind of literature review of the way blind people have been dealt with in, in literature, both fiction and nonfiction and poetry. But secondly, uh, the way that that literature and the way that that lady had been impacted by, uh, by what the literature said about her and some of her, some of her reactions um, to the way that that blind people have been portrayed are are pretty awful. I think my favorite component, and it's it's probably an indication that I haven't read enough Criplet, but but my my favorite right at the beginning is she does a little section on what she calls inspiration porn, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is books written by people who are who are blind or who have disabilities. Uh, or, or by sighted people come to that with, whose, whose primary objective is to quote, inspire others. Um, and in order to do that, they often exaggerate the truth, um, indicate that their, that their characters can jump over buildings at a single bound <laughs> and chase criminals with their guide dogs. Um, but it, it's, it, I, I love the word because A, I think it's pornographic and, and, and B, I think, it is sold on the notion that that um, blind people can inspire folks who are sighted, um, and by doing that, of course, it gives them a platform to look down on us. Miss Judy, it's your turn. Um, <clears throat> I love that phrase, inspiration porn, and she basically says, unfortunately, sighted people will not view blind people as their equals. Because of the ocular-centric world, meaning the eye-centered world, sighted people believe that because they think seeing means they experience reality, so they know better. Blind people to sighted folks generally don't experience reality and can't be taken seriously. One of the other key points she made is so many blind writers, and she really cites Helen Keller, were not allowed to write about what they really wanted to write about. When Helen Keller started to write about her vaudeville experience, she was never allowed to do that because that wasn't the inspirational porn goddess on the pedestal. So, Adam, to address your point, it's not necessarily blind pride for us. It's pride to let sighted people know that their image of us just isn't right. So that's why she says we need more voices, more voices in theater, more voices of blind people as newspaper writers, more voices of people in film as novelists, as painters, as poets. And so, and, you know, so she's big about not about us without us. And and that's where she really, I think, hammers the point brilliantly about how sighted people use blindness against us. And I'm going to stop there. And I'm going to put a woman in the room on the spot. Cheryl Cummings, would you be willing to give us your thoughts on the book as chair of our Multicultural uh, Affairs Committee? 
Okay, so let me confess, first of all, I didn't finish the book. Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about sort of um, one particular image that stood out to me, and, and bec- more because of I, I can talk about its impact on me. Um, so when I was a kid, I was sighted, and one of my first, like, big books that I read was Jane Eyre, you know, when the Jane goes back and Rochester's blind, never thought anything about it. Thought, how how wonderful, you know, that she's returned and he's been humbled and they're, you know, she's going to marry him, stuff like that. Um, and I've got to say, it's a book I reread periodically. Um, and so since I've lost my vision, that last, that ending has always made me feel really uncomfortable in the way Rochester is presented as this sort of mm-hmm. lost individual, as our author talked about, you know, like fumbling to some extent and searching for things that aren't necessarily there. Um, and then I think Jane talks about you know, him seeing they, they, her giving birth and, you know, him not being able to see the face of his child. Um, and I think, as I said, that, that scene, once I became blind, I found so annoying. Cringeworthy. Because, uh, because yeah, because it's, it's like, but I don't need to physically see somebody to see them, Right. And Rochester doesn't need to physically see his child to know that this is his child. Um, and, and the fact that maybe he's having difficulty navigating a space is that it's, he needs to, you know, he doesn't have any blindness skills, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so so he, doesn't, he doesn't know how to do this. But, and, but I totally agree with both what you... Um, Judy and Paul have said that one of my big takeaways was that the author is suggesting that we as blind people need to insist on writing our own stories now. That, you know, the sighted world has had thousands of years to create us. Um, and now it's, you know, that we, we need to be more insistent that our representation of our lives, our, our loves, our, you know, how we live our lives, that we need to be the ones who are telling that story. And that, um, as you said, we need to make sure that uh, we are present in all different aspects of life now to, to make sure that moving forward, understanding of what it means to be blind or not have vision is different than what it was in the past. So that's it. Nice. Thanks. Very nice. I mean, good. Another person? Go ahead. Okay. I was one. I, I, didn't Milton Who's this? actually Who's this? go Who's this, blind? Please? Who's this, please? Oh, I'm Elsie Monty. And Milton actually went blind during his lifetime, didn't yes. he? Yes. I just wanted to clarify that, too. Okay. And he wrote most of Paradise, you know, in the night, and and had to remember it to dictate it to his, you know, secretaries during the day. So it's, it's amazing that he wrote it at all. He had no technology to help him. 
I want to share two incidences that I had with deaf children. Um, the first one was uh, I was teaching in the public school system in the uh, a rural part of the state. And this little boy began to write on the board, I am not good. I'm very, very bad. Um, so he believed that he was bad because he was deaf. And we began to re-educate him about that. And then the, uh, the second time I spoke with deaf students, um, they asked me if I had, if I was proud I was blind. I'm thinking, well, no, I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, it, it, I, I didn't get to choose anything about that. I don't have any, I said, I'm not proud to be blind, but I am proud of what I have accomplished as a blind person. And so, I can kind of see both sides of blind pride, but um, I don't think it will be understood if what we want it to be, if we give it that name. Um, um, it yeah. Yeah, should... I, think you're, I think you're right. Um, I, I think, I think the, word, the word pride has taken on some connotations that would make it difficult to use. Um, but I, 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 th- I think I... I get her point. Um, and, and one of the things that we haven't talked about that we probably should is she says, and I think she's right. Um, and, and I suspect Cheryl could, could, could kind of ride along with this one as well, that one of the problems that blind people have is that they are part of the larger society. And so the ocular centric notion of what the world is, is being absorbed by people who are blind just as much Mm -hmm. as it's being absorbed by people who are sighted. So we actually perceive ourselves very often when we're growing up and very often through our lives in the way that the rest of society perceives us because that's the culture we live in. And the, and the um, point that pride is on the conversation list a few months ago, we had, there was a raging discussion with dozens of back and forth about, you know, what do you mean pride as a blind person? You're just a blind person. You're getting on with it. But the, I think we, we hit upon it here. It's not the right word. This will be quick. No, I believe we are all inspirational. I mean, if you have spent any time studying the human body or psychology, just those two subjects alone, do you realize how inspirational we all are? There's nothing wrong with inspiring people. It gives hope. It gives clarity. It, it, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, the fact that we can adapt to either blindness or Lou Gehrig's disease or whatever it is we do or don't have, there is nothing wrong with that. We should celebrate being inspirational. And that's all I have for now. Thanks. Chris Hunsinger. Um, I hated when I got a high school and went to college and people called me that amazing blind girl. I mean, don't you hate that? Yes. And then the second thing that happened is why don't you skateboard like the other blind person we saw? And I'm like, Oh, well, uh, that's not on my list. And (laughs) so, you know, I had always called it disability porn, but I like it better as inspiration porn. Chris, do you have some further uh, thoughts on the book that on the book. you'd like Absolutely. to share? Absolutely. Please. I, um, I found 
It's fascinating that when I looked for Jacob Torsky stuff, there was nothing, nothing available on Bookshare or you know, MLS. No, it is on, on Bookshare. It is. Yeah. I, I, okay. I, um, I must have misspelled his name. That was why it was good to have the, I'm just going to say this. It was brilliant of Bard to do this in Braille because all the footnotes are there. And I finally found out how to spell Jacob Torsky. <laughs> T-W-E-R-S-K-Y. Yeah, his, his, his stuff is there. And then um, the Ray Charles book, the fascinating thing about that was Bard has the old one from 1978, but Bookshare had the one from right when Ray Charles died. So it had the, it had the um, epilogue. I found the Jacob Tversky stuff interesting. And then um, looking for the, um, the opera singer, one of her books was there. And then I wondered if the other stuff had been published. But here's a, an oddity. Why on earth would Audible have done this book if sighted people wouldn't buy it? I mean, <laughs> isn't that kind of interesting? We'll take right, a Melody. Regarding inspiration, I think that society holds us back, including our families, when we are seems inspirational for doing things like sweeping the floor and making a piece of toast and things like that. If we were seen as more inspirational, if that word has to be used due to our advocacy efforts, those who throw our time into fighting for the rights of others and ourselves or caring for someone as I had, it's kind of hard to prove that. Or if we live with multiple conditions and disabilities and the things that we are doing that maybe a lot of people wouldn't be doing at the same time, it's exhausting. If we're thought to all be climbing Mount Everest, then why aren't we all going to college and have degrees and things? We can't be inspiring every day, but at the same time, it's just not amazing if we're to wash and dishes and things like that, you know, Good point. I think maybe at the context. I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, I did like the book, but I did not agree with all of it. But that isn't necessary for me to like a book. That's my first comment. The second one is that um, the way that a lot of the laws that we now rely on, their enforcement, happened by people sitting in in San Francisco (laughs) and in the federal building way back in the 70s. I was there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it's not about that. And then we visited the Malcolm X Museum on Sunday, and there's a quote from Malcolm that I think applies, that until people see you as human, you will not be treated equally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's the crux of the book. We are humans. If we have to be saints and never have sex, which none of us have Well, maybe if you have achieved, I don't want to get into your personal lives, but many of us have not achieved that, right? We're not saints. Um, We're not superhuman. We're not superheroes. By the same token, we're not the archetype the other way, but that's what you see in literature. And the last thing I'll say is I am doing theater with blind people. And the first performance I ever put on was very difficult for me. Um, when I received the feedback, we did a dance. So we did pairs. We came out on the stage and we danced to music and we worked out, you know, different, different, each set did different types of dancing. And it was just free and expressive. It was, um, it was a improvisational theater. So, but what, some of the comments were is how tragic it was that we were out there dancing. Tragic, mm. they said. 
And it was really hard for me, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but that was just an example of what I read. And I was so upset because what I saw as just expressing what everyone else would express would, was seen so differently than I thought it would be received. Regina, do you mind telling us some of the, that was wonderful, some of the things that you, why you didn't like the book? Oh, no, I did like it. I thought you said to me there were some things you didn't like about I the book. I said I didn't agree with some things. Oh, <laughs> could you talk about some of the things you didn't agree with? The echolocation, the, the ideas about <laughs> echolocation. I don't believe you. I do have echolocation. Um, I use right. it quite frequently, but I don't have to do the little click, click, click stuff. I think that can work for some people, but the idea that that has to be the way you do it and a few things like that. But I don't think she was saying you had to do that. She's just reminding people of all the different ways that blind people manage the world. Anyway, thank you so much. Lorraine Thevany, also California, but remotely. (laughs) Um, My thoughts on that. I haven't had a chance to read the books. I'm a, student, kind of a perpetual student, summer school, and a caregiver. But I'm like on the spectrum. I'm not legally blind, but I'm visually impaired. So I'm not, you know, fully sighted. I fall in the middle. So it's like a lot of people, it's hard to, you know, relate to me because I do things differently, different from sighted, different from blind. And uh, so it's kind of sometimes no man's land. Sometimes people think I do outstanding other times I've been called a spaz or not paying attention. So it's kind of difficult for us that fall on the spectrum, you know? Yes. But, uh, any thoughts to that? Because, I mean, some people say I'm inspirational at times and other people say, well, I could do more, you know? And I feel like I, I kind of push myself to the max, but somehow it's not good enough sometimes. And I, and I think you actually raise a really good point, And that is that, that on the one hand, society will often try to place blind people on a pedestal saying, you guys are just so amazing. I mean, some of the things you can do. I mean, if I was in your situation, okay, I would Paul, just get die. Point. Get <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, on the other hand, um, they perceive us and often characterize us um, as as folks who are inferior to them, um, because they can see and we can't, and because they can do stuff and we can't, because we have to ask for help, because we aren't categorically and always independent, and we need to be ashamed of the fact that we aren't those things, rather than seeing ourselves as valuable and appropriate. So, so I think that one of the things that it does, and that's I think one of the points she makes in her book, is it bifurcates us. In, into these people who, on the one hand, are supposed to inspire, and on the and and on the other hand, are supposed to be ashamed. So it's uh, it 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 makes for uh, it makes for long term split personalities for us blind folks. One of her, I think, wonderful points is to bust sighted folks out of the notion that because they see, they think their reality is all that counts and that that anything other than that in the age of the telescope and the microscope she reminds us that people were shocked 
to realize that they hadn't seen everything and that, in fact, they didn't know with their eyes every, everything that there was to know. Um, you know, obviously, that didn't last because obviously people still to this day work on this ocular centric notion. But she does remind us of times when society had to admit we didn't know that because our eyes didn't tell us. My name's Sean. I'm from Theo. Uh, I am from uh, Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And um, I kind of understand the what you're talking about because I'm looking for work. I'm looking to go into customer service and I'm working with a person that's helping a job developer. And I said to her, I feel like I'm having, I feel like I'm being told to downplay my visual impairment. Um, but my, my visual impairment and my, um, I was executive director of a small nonprofit for a couple of years. And then I taught technology to other blind people for nine years. And I feel like that has made me, you know, more patient and able to work with more diverse, you know, people of diverse backgrounds. And I'm like, and I, I was like, I feel like my visual impairment has actually helped me and has been an asset to me. And yet I have to downplay it to whomever is giving me a job interview or, or whatever, because they don't understand how a blind person could possibly do the work that you've come in to, you know, that you've come in to do. And so I, I don't like, I feel, I, I don't like the way that this feels. I, I don't, you know, I don't like the way that, what you know the way that this whole thing feels so yeah. anyway thank you so much thank you sean are we we i i think i think we all feel your pain i think there are none of us and i think i can say that there are none of us who have worked who haven't experienced something like what you're talking about I think you're right. I would like to hear from more people who have read the book or, you know, read some of it. And some of those, I think, are mostly in the room. So I'd like to have somebody else in the room who has partially or somewhatly or mostly read the book. I um, I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the the fear of Samson and Samson agonistes sure. at the end Um you know, she, the the conversation about um, blindness is something that frightens sighted yep. people, um, and that uh, and they don't know what to, what to do. They presume that we are powerless, only to discover that we are able to to, uh, to destroy their entire te- uh, temple. Right. Um, I, I you know I was like yes um, the the um, and, and this whole notion of there is a time when we didn't see things, and and there was a time when um, even our ancient creeds um, acknowledged that. You know, the Nicene Creed says, um, we believe that God created everything, all that is, seen and unseen, and um, and and that we're part of. We're part of the world that experiences the unseen world, and we are also part of the unseen world. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that uh, you know that that this, the issue of pride, um, when we, when we talk about pride, we have to remember that that the the language of pride that's being used here is not hubris. Yeah. 
Exactly. But uh, but but a a uh, a kind of self individuation um, that allows us to stand up and say yes, I am blind and I have value, and that um, and I think that that M. Leona's book is is uh, one of those really wonderful academic uh, treatises that. Uh, that allows allows us to claim space in that world in a way that we haven't been able to before she wrote the book. Peter, I think you raised a, a point that I'd like to pursue a little bit. And I think this is maybe one of the f- challenges of the book is who is the audience? It is too academic for many readers and not academic, maybe enough for true scholars, is it a memoir? Is it is it for sighted people? She does say, for those of you of my readers, I mean, she'll tell you what JAWS stands for. So she assumes that a lot of her audience does not know, you know, a lot of stuff that we blind folk know. So I think some of the challenges for the book is, who does she think her audience is? And and I think that maybe it's that freshman introduction to literature class. Yes. Um, that, uh, but I think that she also wrote it with an understanding that blind people read more than almost any other group of people that I know of. Yes. And so that that we have we have a literary base that most sighted people um, at any given age don't have. Yep. So I, I I think that that she's she's reading, um, she's she's lifting us up to her level. I, as as I read it, it was that's, I mean you know of course I'm the one who wrote wrote a paper on auditory imagery in Paradise Lost. So what do I know? Well, I wrote about language in in uh, Moby Dick. So I'm yeah. with you, man. <laughs> Could be- this is kind of directed to you, but I'm glad she brought out uh, points about uh, blind women uh, because we do get neglected. And a lot of us, I am not personally a parent and I don't think you are, but a lot of us have had tremendous challenges with doctors and medical people and social workers thinking that uh, we cannot be parents uh, just because we are blind um, and, and, you know, we can't, we can't, we should not live independently for our own personal safety. And of course the idea, the whole sexual thing, blind men are one thing, but blind women are supposed to be these little saintly angels with no interest. So, so, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to bring that out too. Well, yeah, and the uh, the other thing is about Braille, if you all remember, and she talks about it, how the sighted just were really horrified by the whole Braille system. They wanted us to read raised print, which was very difficult, and you couldn't write in it. And there was a tremendous resistance, of course, um, to Braille. Yes. In fact, at his school, the next, you know, the directors would not let them use Braille. Exactly. You know, the, the, inside, the thing we invented wasn't good enough for us because sighted people didn't know what it was. Yes. Yeah. So Paul is reminding us that BRL is meeting tomorrow. And, and oh, yeah. I have a speaker who will actually be talking about that. The, the reason that I was mentioning it now is we have a speaker named Professor Campsey who is coming from tomorrow. She's coming tomorrow. She's from the University of Toronto. 
And we'll actually be talking about some research that she's done on the early history of Braille that cast doubt on mm-hmm. a lot of what we take for granted about the history of Braille. So you won't want to miss that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to ask for, for more of the room, but I'm going to say just one tiny thing because I would like to get some opinions from other people because I found this element of, of her book confusing. And it may, be, it may be that I simply lack the academic rigor that others may have. <laughs> Um, I found I found her depiction of Homer uh, and other uh, early Greek folks um, extremely difficult to understand. Yeah, that's why I said I didn't like the book because that was all in there and I didn't get it. <laughs> um, it's she seemed on the one hand um, to to suggest that they had some value. Um, that, that transcends a lot of other stuff, but she also seemed to suggest at the same time that she had a lot of doubts as to whether they really existed or whether they were groups of people and on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess if she was uncertain, why did she make them so central to her book? So I was very confused. Yeah. Me too. But, I mean, she points to the other Greek uh, blind man, and I think he was Athens or something, and she said, they clearly say he was led by the hand out. And she, you know, saying even the Greek music, even the Greek singers and stuff were still treated like helpless blind people. But the Homer thing, she was more interested in the fact that, again, he was revered, you know, beyond what maybe should have been. That's all. Maybe. Anybody else in the room that might have something to say has read the book? My name is Carla Hayes from McMurray, Pennsylvania, and I read the book. What I wanted, uh, I wanted to answer a question about the who's the audience, and also just a couple other little comments because that was something I was wondering at the beginning, but I think I answered my own question. I think that she did a a really good job of encapsulating the history of blindness through several different domains, through the literature and through, um, you know, the the various aspects of society that, that, you know, and how blindness was treated and and all of that. Um, And I think her audience was, I think she was trying to be inclusive in her audience. I think she was planning for an audience that might include some people that were sighted and some people that are blind, um, visually impaired, newly blind, and that she didn't want to leave anybody out. And so I think it's a, I think it's a more general audience than we might be imagining. As far as the, the, the blind, um, pride thing and the way she, um, she was treating it, I think it all comes down to we do need some sort of a um, sometimes it can be very demoralizing in a sighted world where people devalue us and say things. Well, what will she have for dinner? Or there have been countless times. Probably one of the reasons I started my own business was because I got tired of being beat out by less uh, by less um, qualified sighted people for certain jobs. And that happens because people don't want to give us a chance. And so um, but on the other hand, um, we have to. So I think sometimes this. Well, let's call it blind um, respect, um, blind. Um, um, what do I want to say? Uh, dignity. 
It, we can't really use the word pride. You can't say, I'm, oh, I'm so proud and I'm proud of it. Look at my little cane. Look at my little dog. It's not that kind of thing. But it's the kind of thing where you have a respect for our heritage, you know, sort of a heritage sort of a pride, where we do have a lot of people that have made a lot of strides who happen to be blind and visually impaired. And this is not inspiration porn. This is inspiration that should give some people, some of us courage, especially somebody that that, you know, may be feeling uh, demoralized as far as that is concerned. I don't know if any of this is making sense, but this is what I was thinking as I was reading the book. And I, I, I hope that that does make some sense to you all. Having a role model is different from inspirational. Yes, porn. I think, yeah. I think it is. And um, I think it's okay to have some inspiration. But on the other hand, sometimes I think we're our own worst enemies. How many times, especially mm-hmm. in an organization such as this, do you have people comparing people? I'll never forget the time I came to a convention and I, um, we were, several of us were getting bawled out because you should never take a wheelchair at the convention or at the airport. Do you know what that is doing to our image and going on and on and on? And I mean, what if you have a problem such as myself where I have an equilibrium problem and I get sea legs every time I get on the people mover and can't get a seat. And sometimes it's faster for an airline person to push you and you hold your luggage in your lap. You know what I mean? So there's, yeah. and, and, and I'm not going to be an Eric Weimeyer. I'm not going to climb the mountains. I'm not going to be a soup. I call them super blinks. Yeah. And I don't think we should all be expected to be super blinks. Carla. All right. Uh, next, we have Jenna Cox. I um, From the discussion, I have been enjoying it. And I think, I think the point the author is trying to make here is don't like. You have read the book, right? You've read I the have book? not, but I agree with the author's well, then, yeah. point of as blind people, we can do as much as we can. Don't let people stop you saying that you cannot. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Jenna. I think that's absolutely right. And and thank you for your, for your input as well, Travis. We can take another one because that was pretty short. All right. Jan Hawthorne is back up. The shame over having a blind family member is deep in every culture. It is generational back to probably the first blind person that was ever born. I have a friend from Africa whose family's tribe told them to bury her alive. Because the gods were angry at them, and if they would bury this child alive and let her die, then the gods would be happy with them again. It's it's a, a multicultural, visceral experience, if you would. And the second thing is there's a whole monologue about why how God created Eve, that he didn't take Eve from Adam's foot because he didn't want Adam to be above her, and he didn't take Eve from Adam's head because he didn't want her to be above Adam, and on and on and on, till finally he said, um, it, God took Adam's rib so that Eve could be equal with him. Well, I want to be a blind rib. I want to, you know, have the opportunity to be 
different. I want people to realize that all blind people are differently able. I, I don't think that's an impossible thing for people to learn. I think what has happened is that we, um, the, the, actually the only good thing about inclusion, and it may not be very good depending on who you're looking at, is that the public have more interaction at a younger age with blind people than they might otherwise have. If, but if that blind person is totally dependent on a teacher aid, et cetera, we have not been helped. Thank you, Janet. I think those are, I think those are good points. Um, I'm going to sort of refocus um, the, the, the conversation in, in a slightly different direction and ask folks who have read the book to tell us, if you like, what, what, is the, what is the chief takeaway that you're taking from this book and, and how will it affect how you do things in the future, uh, if it will? Uh, because I think, I think in looking at a book like this, that's one of the questions that you need to ask the book. What's it done to you? How's it impacted you? And how will it change what you do from now on? So, um, Mr. Ralph, feel free to take repeats. Any of you guys who have previously talked, yeah. as, having read the book, we would, we would love to hear this as kind of your final summation of the impact of the book. Well, this is Carol, and I think it has validated a lot of my life experiences. Some of these things that we've been through are things we don't, talk about with each other very much. And um, I, I think it has given me more of a, uh, a willingness to say, okay, uh, I want to be treated with respect and I'm not going to tolerate the inspiration porn or the, the dismissal that I have a right to be respected and be an equal to everyone else. And I didn't think I always felt that way. It's taken me a long time to reach that point. Chris Hunsinger with a thought. I, I was so angry by the time I got to reading the Jacob Tversky piece parts of the book <laughs> that I said, you know, this stuff was written. He went to school in the thirties. He's writing about yeah. it in the fifties and we're still living the same now in 2022. Yep. And, and that, mm -hmm. that angry part has changed. Yeah. This is Regina again. And I, um, I will be, first of all, I'm going to reread it because I rushed to read it to have it done before the workshop. And second of all, I, my key takeaway is that, um, if I'm going to do this work that I do in theater, I need to, go outside of what I know to some of the things that she explored, like the chemist and the, um, the just the different areas and get back through that, the Greek literature that was harder to understand and maybe um, delve into it because I think it needs to inform my work going forward so that what I'm putting out actually does move us in the direction she's, she that we agree, I think, that we need to go as a community where 
we're stressing our humanity. Um, we're stressing our, yeah, our equality because we are human and in every aspect of that. And so, and, and maybe this is generational, but I, I would appeal to you that when other groups march or say they want pride, they're trying to say the same thing that we're saying. They want value. They want value as human beings. And maybe they're not saying it in the way you would say it in your generation, but it, it's a heartbeat of humanity. We all want to be treated like that. Thanks. Okay, Carla Hayes again. And my takeaway from this book is I think she gives us all the license to be ourselves and not to let others make us over and that it might not necessarily be the best thing to get your sight back. You know, there's that whole thing about what happens, how, you know, people that are restored sight that, that sometimes it's best for you to accept yourself and for others to accept us where we are. And she gives us the license to do that with dignity. That's all I'm going to say. The, uh, uh, this is Peter Heidi again. Um, I, uh, what I, I really appreciate most about this book is that, especially if you're going to be in school, if you're planning to be a scholastic of any kind, um, that you need a source to be able to support your own arguments if you're going to be accepted in the academy. And that, um, and her book gives us um, a source that we did not have before. And whether you agree with her or disagree with her, um, it gives you a platform from which you get to write your next paper. And uh, and for that, I am just exceedingly grateful. Is there uh, anyone on Zoom who's read the book who has a big takeaway? You have to have read the book. I can't guarantee they read the book. We do have two hands. The one that went up most recently is Mary. Okay. Yeah. I, some of my takeaway after going through, you know, all of the historical stuff the, um, and the uh, literature review and all of that kind of stuff. And then also, I don't remember where it was in the book, talking about things like echolocation I came away with something I didn't really expect, and that's for me to be a little bit less judgmental of myself and of other blind people for maybe reacting to their blindness in a different way or for, you know, having different skills or for, oh, I, this person can't listen to Jaws at 80% volume, you know, uh, um, 80% speed. And, you know, what I'm I'm saying is that if you – accept who you are and are proud of who you are. And I really like that. Even though I'm a baby boomer, I like the pride thing. I feel like if we really stand up and say that we're proud of being blind, then maybe we'll be a little bit kinder to each other. Thank you, Mary. I'm going to just pop in and say, this is the book I wish I'd written. Yes, uh, there may be some flaws, <laughs> but this is the book I wish I'd written and I've been going to write something and I now I don't have to. She did it. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I have a question here because we, all of us know that there's a chasm between sighted and legally blind and totally blind. I would venture to say if you interviewed 100 sighted people and asked them which sense they would not want to lose. Oh, yeah. Over mm-hmm. Sense of taste 
smell, touch, or blindness, I would bet 99 would say blindness, yep. at least. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody, anybody have any comments about the book? She, in fact, says 85% of people, that is the sense that is referred to most, ah. 85% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I guess the other thing, and I, I know Peter is a, a, a minister, he may have more to, to, to say about that, about this, but, um, you know, the whole thing about the healing of the blind and, and some of the stereotypes that have come from religion, I, I think, have hurt us, and, and a lot of the assumptions that I've dealt with, I'm not a particularly religious person, that, oh, you must be extremely religious, and you must pray every day, and it must uh, really help you. And that isn't true for all of us, but we we do have to deal with that. And I know one of the things that in, influenced me was my parents telling me, you know, when I was born, their old pastor saying, well, your your daughter's blind because it's God's will and it's, um, you know, the sins of the former generations and all that stuff, which <laughs> made my dad never walk into a church again. So um, I, I guess I wonder what, what Peter thinks about these religious factors and what churches can perhaps do to accept people with disabilities in, in a better, more positive way. This is Adam. Go ahead, I think Adam. Mary had a, a, a good point that made me stop and think, and that is we l- need to look at ourselves. For instance, I wonder if you even took um, low vision people and what they think of totally blind people. You would still find mm. some of that same type of attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is Cheryl. And I think I feel like we're in a sort of complex time in the sense that. Um, I mean, we're we're a country that has access to lots of information, and I think I mean, people know on some level about blindness, but they're still really scared about it. Um, and so, I would say my takeaway from the book, similar to Regina's, um, is that as individuals who are blind, it's really incumbent upon us to to the extent that we can not let the world sort of overwhelm us with their negative perceptions and beliefs about what it means to be blind. Um, and again, back to the sort of original statement that for folks who are writers and creators and developers and who who do have opportunities to be in spaces where Things are, you know, policies are being made or plays are being written and TV shows and stuff like that, that to the extent that they should speak up. And when you see characters or you see representations or you see things being developed that are really negative for us, that they, they need to take on that role and say, this is, this is not going to work. Um, and, you know, offer workable alternatives. So. So I'm going to make maybe one minute of comments and then hand it to Judy to close uh, things out. I think my takeaway uh, from this is that we as blind people have actually uh, been negligent about exploring who we are. And in particular, I think, 
that I take away the fact that one of the things that we've essentially allowed ourselves to do is to get lost in two places. One of those places is in actually accepting that there is a much larger cause that is the intersectionality of race and the intersectionality of women and all those things. And we're perfectly fine becoming involved in those. But the intersectionality relates directly to blindness, we essentially ignore. And the third and the final thing um, that, that I took away from this book uh, is that in a relatively small number of pages and absolutely and unequivocally in an incomplete way, this lady explores some of the high points and often self-chosen of the way that literature has interacted with blind people. But this is by no means an exhaustive survey and doesn't come close to covering all the instances that are out there or maybe even covering all the points of view that are out there. So I think that one of the things that this book also and the final takeaway that I'll talk about does is it suggests to us that we need to read more carefully and we need to examine more openly the degree to which the notion of who we are is being distorted by the lens through which we're looking at it. Judy. I sincerely hope those of you who haven't read this book will read it. Um, It is truly uh, worth reading. And I'm very pleased that we picked this book this year because it truly represents the kinds of discussions we like to have here with our one book, one ACB. And as a, the, the, the horizons that this book, as Paul says, it's incomplete in so many ways, but the boxes she ticks are so important and so relevant today. Okay. I'm just going to say that Lua, BRL, Teachers, MCAC, the Multicultural Affairs Committee, and uh, BPI, Blind Pride, all thank you, and we're all co-sponsors of this event. So thank you so much for coming, and happy reading. <laughs>